Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to the dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. We come to your word, and we trust that you would send your Holy Spirit to meet us here this morning. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive it. We pray that you would remove those errant thoughts about the things that we didn't get done this week that we thought we would get done. Pray that you would uh, put at rest our anxious worries about our family, about this upcoming season, about about difficulties that we have in our life right now, about the many worries. Pray for those of us who are are just hurting this morning. I pray that as we read about you and as we read about your exhortation to us not to judge others, I pray that you would bring your kindness and goodness to bear in our life and that we, we would receive the freedom and the rest and the hope of your gospel. We pray all these things expectantly because we pray them in Christ Jesus. I think this is the okay. I think the wireless is not working, so I'm still going to go with this. Is that right? Great. Um, <clears throat> I was having lunch with Ricky Jones, who uh, many of y'all know is the pastor of Redeemer or River Oaks Presbyterian Church in Tulsa, the church that uh, planted this church originally several years ago. I was having lunch with Ricky a few weeks ago, and he was telling the story of uh, in September, this warm September morning. I'm sure it was warm. Uh, he had walked out of his office uh, onto the church property down in South Tulsa. And uh, Ricky had noticed for months at that point that there were not just a few, but a, a lot of gophers and moles. I don't know the difference, so some of y'all probably do. Uh, I think there were a lot of moles around the church property. And so, as any good Oklahoman would, he brought a BB gun with him to work. And I assure you it wasn't an ordinary BB gun. Right here? Stay away? Okay. Um, and he went out on the property and it was one of like AK-47 BB gun with a scope on it. And so there is Ricky at uh, 9, 9.30 in the morning walking around the church property uh, in South Tulsa, which would have been completely fine had River Oaks not decided to rent out part of their church facility to a school. And so as he is perusing the property, he gets up near the front, and a mother is driving in the entrance to the school to drop off her child and sees a man carrying a rifle, uh, walking around the church. On one sense, it's not funny at all, but on another sense, it's hilarious, right? Um, Because there's Ricky. She looks at him and is frozen by him, and he's obviously frozen by the situation and what's happening, and he's looking down, he's looking at her, and uh, I'm sure he said something to himself and dropped the gun and just kind of, you know, made one of these motions, Sure, at this point, this woman is already dialing 911. The police are on their way and all of those things. In this passage, Jesus is not looking at us, 
nor is he looking at that woman and saying, do not judge that man. <laughs> I think Jesus would have commended her to go ahead and call the cops. Uh, that's, that's an okay thing to do. Because what Jesus is not doing is he's not saying, don't use good judgment. Don't judge at all. Don't, don't do anything like that. He's actually calling Christians to use our critical minds, our, our the faculties he's given us to live wisely in this world. And we see that because of verse 6. He says, look, don't cast your, your pearls before swine. Don't just live indiscriminately. What he is saying, though, is don't live with this spirit of condemnation. Don't live just day in and day out with this spirit of, I'm always looking at other people, trying to distance myself from them, or looking at them to see what they're doing wrong, because that's the spirit of condemnation that Jesus says will work its way into the world and into our hearts and be the opposite of what he came to do when he came to bring life and rest and joy in his advent and in his, uh, in his suffering and in his death. And so Jesus is forbidding in this passage a critical spirit toward others, not the critical use of our mind. And so why does he do this? Why does he look out at this specific issue of judgmentalism and say, don't do this, and command his followers, don't do this? The first thing that we will see is that he says this because judgmentalism and this spirit of looking at others seeking to do this, quite frankly, is destructive. It's very destructive. In the first couple of verses... We see it right there. He says, uh, he says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is looking and saying that the sin of judgmentalism is destructive to you. That if you are the one who is constantly living in this spirit of judging others, that actually works to destroy you. How? Jesus says that when we judge others, we will be judged by that same standard. Now, who judges us? It doesn't really say there. There's not a subject to the second half of that sentence. But in Scripture, this is called the divine passive. That if there's this sense that you're going to be judged, it's coming. God is the one who is going to judge you, if not other people also, but at least God. So what Jesus is saying is if you move out into the world with this sense of, I'm going to look at all these other people and tell them what not to do and how not to live and all of these things, saying, well, okay, you just have to know that God is going to hold you to that same standard, if not others also. Think about it like this. The moment that you turn to your spouse, for those of you who are married, and say, honey, you shouldn't yell at the kids for that. And what Jesus is saying, what you're doing is you're inviting that same standard of not doing that or whatever. You're inviting your spouse to do that to you, which, quite frankly, I don't want that. Because <laughs> Sarah is much nicer than me, and so she's yelling at them for something. Uh, I'm going to get really mad, right? And I don't want to be held at that same bar. But Jesus is saying, look, if you do it to others, it's coming to you too. It's coming to you too. Because of of sin and the way that it works in our hearts and our lives, things like this will happen in our home. Uh, I will, 
uh, feel really good and productive one day, and I'll decide to clean up my mess throughout the house, which inevitably is throughout the house. Uh, clothes in the bedroom, shoes in the living room, you know how it goes, guys, just stuff everywhere. And so I'll do that first, and I'll be feeling pretty good about myself as if I'm helping my wife, when I'm only doing my duty. Um, I'm out there doing all that, and then, because of sin, <laughs> I look at her and say, Sarah, could you clean up your stuff? Right? That, that point of pride which has led me to say, now that, I, now that my life's together, I can look down on her and her filth. Say, Sarah, why are you such a mess? Why are you such a slob? Now, friends, I can, again, assure you, my wife is much cleaner than I am. She uh, keeps her side of the room, as it were, much more picked up than me. We just recently moved the bed so that uh, if I leave a pile next to my uh, side of the bed, it actually inhibits us going to the bathroom. It's just like a forced clean your stuff up. Now, if I want to put that standard on her of utter cleanliness and all this stuff, I have to know that it's coming back to me. And God is saying that that eventually works to destroy you. Because the more we are looking out at the world and at other people and holding them to these various standards, the more that we are putting these standards on our own lives. And I don't know which one of us at all really wants to invite that kind of judgment in all areas of our life. Okay, so that's kind of a funny example, but it's actually a pretty serious issue. Because how many of us get really frustrated when others break commitments? Break commitments. It could be about really serious things, or it could be about smaller things. But nonetheless, someone tells you they're going to do something, and so you schedule it, or you kind of work out a babysitter, or whatever that situation may look like for you, And then just seemingly on a whim, they say, oh, yeah, sorry, I'm not going to be able to do that. What? And it it makes you angry. And yet we so often will do those things too. And we will justify our own actions in the way that that we break commitments on a whim. Just when we don't want to or we don't feel like doing that. And so we judge others, we hold them to an incredibly high standard, yet we let ourselves off easily. And Jesus is saying, no, it shouldn't be that way. But what about those of us who, who get really frustrated when people tell us half-truths? You know, they tell us enough of the truth where we, where we feel like we can trust them, but in reality they're leaving off all sorts of details. And so they've drawn you into a place of trust, And yet we find out later that, in fact, they're withholding a lot from you, and it totally changes the situation or the dynamic. And we get angry at them. And yet, how often do we tell little white lies to get ourselves out of situations? Because we'd rather not have that confrontation with our spouse or our children or our co-workers. And we excuse our our own lying, our own deceptiveness that double standard that we do. How often do you find out that others have been talking about you and get angry about? That's, that's hurtful. It makes you sad when you hear that your friends or the people around you are gossiping about you or about your family or your children. And yet we do the same thing. We talk about others. We love to figure out things that we're doing better than them so we can feel better about ourselves. And Jesus is saying it it shouldn't be this way. 
And to the degree that we judge others, we're inviting that same judgment on ourselves from God and perhaps from others too. And it will work eventually to our own destruction. If we actually believe that was true, let's think for a second. If we actually believe that to the the degree we judge others, we will be judged and held by those same standards, what would that change about the way we live? What would that change about the way we, we speak to others and the conversations we have or the way we talk behind others' backs? What would change if we believed that we were inviting judgment on ourselves? I know for me it would, it would change a lot. It would, it, radically, it would radically change the way that I move out into the world and what I seek to do with my mouth, with my thoughts, with my hands. Because quite frankly, I don't need... I don't need to invite more judgment. I do enough stupid things on my own. I don't need to invite additional scrutiny. And Jesus is saying that's happening. Do this. So it's hurtful to us. It's destructive to us. But obviously, it's also hurtful and destructive to others when we pass judgment and when we move out of the world doing this. In verses 4 and 5, he draws us in to asking the question, and saying, look, since we can't evaluate ourselves rightly, we don't even really know what all's going on in here because our hearts are deceptive and ugly. Why should we look at others and seek to pass judgment on them? He says, look, you have these planks in your own eye, and yet you're looking at this speck in their eye and thinking you need to deal with that. And I actually kind of appreciate what Jesus is saying here. Because he's saying it's even possible that you may be moving toward others with a desire to help them. To help get the specks out of their eyes. Which feels righteous. It feels like a good thing to do. But he's saying when you do that without discerning your own heart first, this actually can be very destructive to others. It actually can be very harmful to them. A few weeks back, I was finishing painting a front door, which has been a nine-month process, (laughs) because we've repainted it several times. That's fine. Um, But I'm out there putting the final coat on, and Norcline, our four-year-old, had asked if she could come help me paint the door. And so what that meant was she had her pink paints, and she had her painting smock on, and she was going to come out there and help me. I told her she couldn't help me paint the door, but that she could paint a pumpkin, which was sitting next to the door. So uh, about 30 minutes into it, there's pink paint all over the porch, all over the pumpkin, all over her, her hands, everything. And I needed to get inside. And she said, oh, Daddy, I'll help you. And before I could stop her, she was going to open the door, the latch, and put her, you know, push the door open. I appreciate what she was trying to do. She was trying to help me. But she had pink paint all over her. And at this point, it was all over the door, which I had just painted. And it was one of those weird parenting moments where where you kind of love your kid and you kind of really don't. <laughs> um, that's what had happened. She's four. She couldn't rightly discern that she was an utter mess and that her moving toward me and trying to help was ultimately going to be hurtful, small, <laughs> lowercase h, hurtful to me into the situation. It also happened when I was in seminary. <laughs> Uh, in seminary, you go through this terrible exercise called preaching lab, and you do it for four semesters, where you stand up in front of class, and essentially it's you know practice and public speaking, except it's kind of weird because you're talking about the Bible. And so uh, you stand up, and you, and you do this fake sermon thing, 
and everybody in the class, your peers and your teacher, have a time where they can review and critique what you've done. Um, I liked preaching lab because I thought I was a pretty good preacher. Um, and so I would, from my on, you know, perch on high, I would offer these subtle yet helpful critiques to my classmates um, because I thought I was doing pretty good, and obviously they needed my help. And so then it was my turn, and uh, another part of this exercise is they film you, and you have to watch it on video later. Well, I learned that when I was first learning how to preach, I, I did this. I would stand with one foot behind the other, and I would cock my head to the right. And I would just talk like this for however long I was talking for. And it looked ridiculous, and I had no idea I was doing it. But obviously others needed my help, but I, friends, I'm telling you, I was not ready for the help I received at their hands. Because I watched it on video, I couldn't escape that there was this plank in my own preaching posture. Friends, there was this plank in my own eye, and I was sitting there trying to dab these specks out of their own eyes. Jesus is saying when we adopt this posture and move out into life in this way, it is hurtful to others. It is destructive to them. And Jesus in this passage is asking us to consider our problems big and the problems and issues in each other's lives small. The word here that's used for plank is not just like a plank you put on the outside of a wall. It's more like it's more like a ceiling joist or a, or a floor joist or a ceiling rafter. It's the main beam that would hold the structure in place and would hold it together. It could be 40 feet long, five feet around in that day. And Jesus is saying, it's huge. The thing that is in your own eye is huge. Don't worry about what's in your friend's eye. It's not that big of a deal. Deal with the stuff in your own eye And then maybe from that place, you can lovingly move toward them. Friends, don't go out here with this huge plank coming out of yourself because it's going to be hurtful to others. And Jesus is calling us away from that. So the thing becomes, if if obviously, if if judgmentalism is so destructive to us and to others, then why do we do it? Why is it so stinking fun to do this? And the answer is that it's because it's seductive. It draws us in. It's like the siren song. It draws us in to its destructiveness. And this is how it does that. First, it draws us in because judging others allows us to feel good about ourselves. That's so obvious. It's really intuitive that when we pass judgment on others, It puts us in a place where we can feel really good about ourselves. Because all of us in here have various and many insecurities about different things in our lives, whether it's the way you look, whether it's uh, your mental abilities, whether it's the amount of money you make or whatever it is, because we have all these various insecurities, we are constantly looking around us at other people and finding ways that we can be better than them or show ourselves to be better than them and kind of subtly or not so subtly push them beneath us. So we can create a little space here to where they know that, yeah, we're different. I actually am quite a bit better looking than you. Or I do make a little bit better money than, or a little bit more money than you do. Don't, don't you see the car that I drive? I'm at obviously quite a bit smarter than you. Can't you tell by the words that I use? 
when I was growing up, uh, the neighbors behind us, just across the fence, they had a swimming pool. And whenever they would go on vacation, uh, we would go use their pool, which sounds weird, except my parents were in on it too. We never asked them, but every time when they leave town, <laughs> we would go use their pool, which is weird now. Um, but anyway, we would go back into the pool, and my, my dad and my brothers and whatever friends we had, and we would play this family favorite game called the totem tower, the totem pole, whatever you want to call it. And the way that the totem tower would work is that inevitably my dad, he would go underwater, and all of us boys, I have two brothers, we would stack up on his shoulders from oldest to smallest or youngest, and my dad would try you know, to stand up out of the water, and we'd try to stay straight up for as long as we could. The whole joy in that game was to try and be the one on top, <laughs> Right? Because if you're anywhere else in the tower, it hurt. And people are, you know, moving around, their necks getting red and everything, they're pulling your hair. So the whole goal and the whole thing you waited for is to be the one on top. Functionally, I think we kind of do this in our lives. We're constantly trying to play this game of putting others beneath us, and we're, we're, we're wriggling their necks, and we're doing whatever we can to create a little separation so that we can be the ones on top feeling good about ourselves, seeing the world rightly, passing judgment. And we're constantly seeking to maneuver situations and manipulate situations to where we are the ones who are free from judgment. And who are the ones who rightly can see situations and pass judgment. Create some space between us and them. We're addicted to that that feeling good thing. And I don't even have to sit here and tell you, I don't have to tell you all the things you have to avoid or the things we seek for to feel good, right? We all have those things that we do, the indulgences, the pleasures, whatever it is for you. I'm here to say that all we need to try and feel good about ourselves is just one more person. Because we're going to look at that person, and if you give us enough time, we're going to convince ourselves that we are better than them in some way. And in our hearts, we are going to create that separation, saying, yeah, I I am smarter than you are. Whether or not it ever leaves your mouth, you're going to say that. Or I am more handy around the house than you are. My wife is better looking than you are. Or my husband is stronger. Right. Whatever it is. We do it. Our hearts are prone to that. And so what is it for you? How, how is it that you move out of the world and do this? Are your kids better behaved? Are your kids on a better schedule? I know about the scheduling crime. I do. Do you only eat organic food? Is it about the way that you, you school and... and teach your children? Is it about the minivan you drive or don't drive? If in your heart you find whatever issue it may be, you find this growing sense of of pride and this growing sense of this ability to look down on others in whatever issue it is that you deem yourself better than others, And friends, consider that a flashing warning sign that there is danger ahead in your heart. Jesus is here in this passage 
calling us out of that place, saying, I understand it's destructive. I understand it's seductive. And it ought not be so, it ought not be so among you. Tim Keller has a lot of uh, really helpful things that he says. One of the things that he said that I latched onto about 10 years ago is this simple line. It says, bring your deadly goodness to Jesus' feet. Look, after all, you are at church on a Sunday morning, which means that, that you are seeking to live your life in a way that in some way is different from just kind of the world at large. And so you may not be given to some of the the indulgences that our world is, and maybe your friends are. And because of those things, we have the the, the tendency to feel good about ourselves. But Jesus is saying that no, sins like judgmentalism and pride are so destructive, and they're so seductive, that we need to be on high alert for them in our lives. And Keller is saying, friends, we we have to bring our very goodness to Jesus and say, please help me in the midst of this. Because I'm taking what could be a good thing and I've made it it everything. I've made it the best thing. If I don't have that thing, my life will be undone. When I was in college, I was part of a Christian fraternity which had some really great things about it and some really not so great things and ridiculous things about it. Um, And one of the things that happened in that fraternity uh, during initiation, I probably am not supposed to say this, but I don't care, um, was during the initiation ritual, uh, we would go out in the woods somewhere outside of Norman, and the officers or somebody would have built a cross. And at one point along the night, uh, you come to the cross, and there's a whole bunch of smooth river stones at the base of the cross with a few Sharpie markers. And you would go and grab a stone, and you'd grab a magic marker, and you'd kind of go off by yourself, in this really spiritual exercise, and you'd write your pet sins on the rock. And you'd turn around after a few minutes, and you'd go put them at the feet of the cross. I have no problem with resolving to want to change, with resolving to seek to put to death the sins of the flesh. In fact, I'm all for that. But I can assure you, and and I know for a fact, because I was an officer who went back and read a lot of rocks, (laughs) there was nobody out there confessing our own goodness, and my judgmentalism toward others. It was all the pet sins, you know, the bad stuff. And I just want to bring to our attention that those things are destructive, right? There are things in our, in our world that are very destructive to us and others. But things like judgmentalism can be so much more destructive because a lot of times people don't even know that they're in us. And a lot of times we don't even know they're in us. And we're drawn into it because we want to feel better than them. Another reason that judgmentalism is seductive is because, quite frankly, we like to be the ones who help others. We like to be the ones that the friends come to with their problem. Because so long as people are coming to us with their problems and we can help them, we don't have to deal with our own problems. Our life is so consumed with other people's problems that we never have to take a second look at our own heart. And this is really hard for pastors, whether or not you know that. This is why it's really encouraging that that here in Tulsa and around the Tulsa area, we get together with other pastors on Monday and we talk about things like this. But it's really tempting for pastors to never take that second look at their own heart. Because part of our profession and part of God's calling for us is to deal with the problems of others. Blake tells me, y'all are screwed up. I'm just kidding, he doesn't, but I know you are. 
And so there's that, that place of potential pride and, and joy that comes from being the one that helps people. A few years ago, I had gotten to know a, a student, and we had been um, had a student-campus minister relationship for a couple years, and we're having coffee or lunch one day, and I, t- I just looked at her, and I said, look, I feel like the way these conversations go is that we sit down and we kind of do small talk for a little bit, and then I ask you to do the life dump, you know, totally update me on every facet of everything that's happened in your life, and I'm sitting here with my radar looking for something black, right? And whenever the black thing shows up, then I just pounce on it, right? The Jesus line. I'm like, oh, you need Jesus in all these ways, and this is how Jesus is going to help you and all that stuff. It's just like, wow. I said, I I feel like I'm doing that to you. And she said, yeah, you are, and I don't like it. Gosh, why didn't you tell me? I, I enjoyed that position of thinking that that person needed me because I was helpful. And friends, if that is you, you understand why that is so seductive and why that is so attractive because it makes you feel important and it makes you feel needed. I think Jesus would caution you from that place because if all you're ever doing is looking down on other people's, uh, their sin or their issues and never looking at your own heart, at the plank in your own eye, saying ultimately, over time, that will prove to be to your own destruction. So what then has the power to break that cycle? That destructive, seductive cycle of judgmentalism. What can deliver us from that so that the church, so that our community might move toward a place of healing? So that we could be people who offer hope instead of judgmentalism toward others. What can do that? God can. God can. Now, You expected that I would say that, right? You expected that Jesus is going to be the answer. The gospel is going to be the answer. And it absolutely is. And here's why. And here's how that works. Because you see, built into the very fabric and the very narrative of the Christian story is this this idea and this expectation that there is a good judge. That there is a good judge. That God is real And that he has no plank in his eye. He has no speck in his eye. And we see that when Jesus came down to earth and lived among people. Friends, he saw saw things rightly. He saw things clearly. And what did he do? He moved toward them with compassion. And with humility. And with love. And with kindness. And this idea was there in all of Scripture because Abraham, even early on in Genesis 18, looks up and says, will not the judge of the whole world do right? And the resounding picture from Scripture is, yes, he will. He will. Friends, one day he will. One day he will. He has already begun that process now through Jesus in his coming and in his life and his death and his resurrection. And one day he will finish it fully. And this is good news for you. And let me tell you why. Because think about your past. Think about all of the things that you have already done to this point in your life. The sinful things. The hurtful things. The things you're ashamed of. Embarrassed about. The things that you wish you would have done that maybe you haven't told anybody about. Through Christ, 
through his redeeming, reconciling, forgiving work on the cross, God looks at those things and says they're forgiven and paid for. You don't have to worry about that anymore. And that God has taken those things from you as far as the east is from the west. Your past is dealt with. It is done. There's no more guilt. There's no more shame. What about now? Instead of walking around this world insecure about your your ongoing failures, your ongoing struggles, your ongoing insecurities, God looks at you through what Jesus has done, through being accepted into His family, and He says, I like you. I love you. Right now, you are fully accepted as a son or a daughter. Friends, God has no more judgment for you at all. And so when in your life you're tempted to think that he is like a boss standing behind you with a clipboard looking at the list of things that you haven't done, you have to remember the gospel. What's true in Scripture is that Jesus took that list from God and he completed it. And God now looks at you and sees the A+. He sees perfect righteousness credited to you through Christ. That changes things right now. But what about the future? Oh man, it gets better. Because the great hope and the promise of the gospel is that, friends, there will be a good judge who judges rightly and with justice and equity one day. That one day, someday, God will look down at this world and He will bring all to account. And that is the best news in the world because what that means is that everything that is unjust, everything that is evil about this world right now that is going unpunished will one day be brought to the bar of justice. And the God who sees all and who knows all and who judges all rightly will look and pronounce a right judgment on those things. And for some of you, that's tremendously hopeful because you've had things done to you that are unspeakable. And those people have gotten away with it to date. Right now, that person or those people are walking around seemingly free. And the hope of the gospel is that that will not not always be the case. Some of you, each day of your life, you bear up under a hundred little things. You absorb a hundred small blows for the sake of your family, or the sake of your friends, or whatever it is, and you don't retaliate. Friends, God, God will bring that out and He will judge it rightly. And that's hopeful. But we have to know that we will all stand before that bar of judgment. That it's not just for everyone else, it's actually going to be turned on us too. And so if, if you are in your life and you're sitting with in a position where you've never looked to Christ to ask Him to take everything from you that God might rightly one day look at and judge fairly and punish us for rightly, if you've never looked to Christ and said, please take this from me, then I would encourage you even right now or just a moment to do that. Christ will take it. And God will gladly welcome you into this family, this covenant family of love with open arms. 
And it is a family of love. It is a place of forgiveness and healing. And when we have that, you see, as the church, when our sins have been forgiven, we realize and we are freed up from moving out into the world in judgment toward others. Because if you've already been forgiven the massive amount of sin and stuff in your own life, then you don't have to bear under the weight of obligation of doing that to others. Why would you want to? You can move out and offer them joy. You can offer them forgiveness of Jesus. You can offer them hope and welcome them in for healing. When this becomes true for you, you'll realize that God has not enlisted you to be his sidekick judge. He wants you for a son. He wants you for a daughter. And he's asking you to do something so much more glorious than that. He's asking you to go out into the world and call people to him, to the good judge, who will judge rightly, but who will also bring forgiveness and offer hope and joy where maybe it's been lost. And he does that through Jesus, his son. So is that true of you? Has it ever been true of you? Are you ready to see God in that way? Many of you, you are. Yet there's things that you're still bearing up under the weight of, or the the ways you're still trying to judge others. Even now, as as we pray, I would ask you to confess those things to God. Ask Him to bring you to a place of healing that you might move toward others in love and forgiveness. And if you haven't received the love of Jesus, I would invite you to ask God for it. He will give it. He is kind and gracious. Father in heaven, I pray that you would meet us in our hearts wherever we are. If we're characterized, if our lives are full of of judgmentalism toward others, I pray that you would bring us to a place of repentance where we we may cast that on you and seek to change by your spirit. I pray that if there is anyone in here who, who has never received the forgiveness that you offer, the hope that Jesus has taken everything that we fear most for when we one day will face you, I pray that you would move that person toward a place of faith and trusting in your forgiveness that is offered. And I pray now that as we continue to worship through giving of what you have given us and through meeting you at your table, I pray that you use all these things to speak of your joy and of your grace and of your love and kindness toward us. We thank you for your son who came to make all of this possible. In his name we pray.